Now, many of you have probably heard the name William Tyndale before. Tyndale was an early Protestant reformer who was responsible for producing one of the first uh, English Bibles for the general reader. And the reason that we sit here and I'm preaching in English, we're reading the Bible in English and not in Latin, is partially because of the work of William Tyndale. See, it was Tyndale's vision that every person would be able to hear the Bible preached and read in their own language. Uh, once he was talking with a Catholic scholar, and they're having this conversation, and the scholar had said something about the Pope and the glory of the Pope's laws and his commands. And Tyndale responded, I defy the Pope in all his laws. And if God spare my life, in many years I will cause a boy that drives the plow to know more of Scripture than the Pope himself does. And so that was William Tyndale's vision. And he spent his life translating the Bible into English. But there were people who were opposed to that. The King of England was opposed to that. The, the bishops of England at the time were opposed to that. And so he was forced to flee to the continent to finish his work. But eventually he did finish most of his work. And his Bible slowly started making its way back into England. And of course the king did not like this, and so he created this group of, of people. He conspired with the authorities on the continent, and eventually Tyndale was betrayed by a good friend and handed over to the authorities. He was imprisoned and condemned as a heretic, and then on October 6, he was taken to the middle of the town square. He was told that he needed to recant his faith, and with his last words, he said this, Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. And at that, he was burned at the stake. But the story doesn't end there. See, a few short years later, Tyndale's prayer was answered. King Henry VIII ordered that a copy of the English Bible that was largely inspired by, by Tyndale was to be put in every parish in England. And so Tyndale's vision that the, every Englishman would know and hear the word of God preached and read in their own language was beginning to be fulfilled. Now a question that I have when thinking about Tyndale's life is, why did he do this? I mean, Tyndale could read Greek, the original New Testament. He could read Hebrew, the original Old Testament. So he didn't need an English Bible. So why would he give his whole life, risk, risk his own, risk the life of his family, his comfort, all of that to translate the Bible into English. Well, it's because Tyndale saw that the working of God goes beyond just him. The working of God goes beyond just him. God's plans are, are greater than just him and his relationship with God. And he saw that the workings of God, they don't come to us and then stop with us. But they have a greater implication for all of society and really for all of humanity. See, God's plans are, are greater than you and me. And so last week we, we looked at Mary's song and we studied a few of the reasons why we can rejoice as Christians. You know, and the primary reason was that we rejoice because Christ has come to save us from our sins. 
He has come as a Savior. He's come to ransom us from the bondage to sin, the shackles of sin that keep us in slavery. He's come to take our dead and lifeless body and breathe life into it and make it alive. And of course, he's come to save us from the consequence of our sin. That we will no longer perish in hell, bearing the wrath of God for all of eternity. Jesus has come as our Savior, and that's why we rejoice this Christmas morning. Even though that is more than enough reason to rejoice, there is even more than that. In the second half of Mary's song, she's going to turn her attention to some of those things. She's going to kind of take her focus away from the individual workings of God, of salvation in our lives, and she's going to focus them now on the communal and the universal workings of God that cause us to rejoice. And the point being this, God has got a greater plan than just you and me. And yet, the beauty of it is that it involves you and me. It is accomplished through you and me. And my goal this morning is to get you on board with God's plan of redemption, rejoicing in it, praying for it, and being a part of it. And so if you're not already there, grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 1, uh, verse 46 to 55. This is Mary's uh, song of joy that she sings when she comes and meets her aunt Elizabeth. So hear God's word this morning. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, now all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. So this morning's sermon is just going to have two points. Uh, The first is that we're going to look at God's plan of redemption and how it has societal implications. So it's got implications more than just on the individual level. It's got implications in society. And then the second point we're going to look at is how God's plan of redemption has universal implications. So from the individual to society to the whole world. And we're going to see that both of, both of these things, God's working in society, God's working in all of creation, requires us to rejoice in God's work and to also act as agents of God's work. And so first, God's plan of redemption has societal implications. That is, the gospel comes and it changes society. Not only does it change us as individuals by giving us salvation, but then 
we go and we become part of a broader change in society that God is bringing about. Now, one thing to note here is that in Mary's song, she's speaking about God's plan for society, both uh, reflecting on history, what has already happened uh, in God's workings, and then she's also looking uh, prophetically. Or she's speaking prophetically to the future of what Christ has come to do and what the church is called <coughs> to do. Her song is both historical and prophetic. And she mentions several groups here uh, in this passage. Look in verse 51. Uh, she mentions that God has scattered the proud. So you have the group of the proud. We see in verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. There's another group. He has exalted those of humble estate. Verse 53 is filled the hungry with good things. And then again in verse 53, and the rich he has sent away empty. And so Mary is kind of here classifying these people into these two groups. You kind of have the, the proud and the mighty and the rich on one side, and then you have you know, the humble, the poor, and the hungry on the other side. And we saw this in the passage that John read for us earlier, Hannah's song, uh, where she talks about very similar things. And now, these groups aren't definite groups. I mean, it's not as if every rich person is proud or every hungry person is humble. But in general, might, pride, and riches tend to go together, and the, the poor, the hungry, and the humble tend to go together. That's really the, the type of Roman and Greek society that Mary has been raised in that is, has dominated this world and quite frankly really dominates the world uh, that we live in today as well. And the point that Mary's making by bringing up all of these groups is that God does not forget the groups that society often forgets. God does not forget the groups that society often forgets. It says here that he exalts the humble. It says that he fills the hungry with good things. See, the sinful human tendency is to really do the opposite. You know, to favor the rich above the poor, to favor the, the mighty and the strong over the, the weak and the downcast. And we see that Christians might think, oh, we don't fall into that. Christians do fall into this as well. Remember the letter of James. James has to write a certain section to the people reminding them against the idea of partiality. See, what was happening was there were certain uh, rich people that were dressed nicely that were coming in for the, the service, and the Christians there were saying, oh, come and sit in this, this nice chair. Uh, take the best seat uh, in our, our meeting. And then you had poor people coming in, and they were saying, okay, why don't you sit on the floor over here? And so they were showing this partiality. It'd be like me today. You know, I see someone roll up in an Escalade, and I treat them much better than I see someone being dropped off by the bus. There's this idea that humans can, can struggle with showing partiality towards the rich and the, the mighty against the, the poor and the humble. See, but God, God shows no partiality. That's what James says. He doesn't look on the poor, downcast, hungry, and marginalized and see them as less deserving of respect and honor. In fact, in his law, he goes out of his way to ensure that their needs are being met. I want you to listen to some of the laws uh, from Deuteronomy 24. 
Deuteronomy 24, verse 14. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land. Verse 17. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment in a pledge. Verse 19. When you reap your harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. <coughs> These are just some of the many laws that God has put in place to protect the poor. And you see that in these verses, poor, I'm using the word poor, but doesn't necessarily mean financially poor. When the Bible talks about poor, it means those who are, are marginalized in society, the, the, the orphans, the, the widows, even the sojourners, it talks about as being part of the poor. But the problem is that Israel, though they were given these laws, they failed miserably at keeping them. And we see the prophets come and talk about this a lot. And many of the prophets talk to Israel about their injustice of oppressing the poor. In the first chapter of Isaiah, he rebukes Judah saying, and when you spread out your hands in praise, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen to you. Your hands are full of blood. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Or perhaps Amos 2, verse 6 to 7. For three sins of Israel, even four, I will not relent. For they sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground, and they deny justice to the oppressed. See, Israel failed to uphold biblical justice. But as we see so much throughout the Bible, where Israel fails, Christ comes and he succeeds. You know, Christ comes as the, the true and better Israel who upholds and administers justice for all people. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Luke records for us some important words that he says in Luke chapter 4. <clears throat> you can turn there in your Bibles. Luke chapter 4, verse 17. And so what's happening here is Jesus is, is in the synagogue, uh, and he's given a, a scroll of Isaiah to read. And now this is what it says in verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
See, God's plan is bigger than just you and me. In the coming of Christ, you see God's desire not only for people to be changed at an individual level, but for society to be changed. And this is, is cause for joy for us as Christians. You know, God cares about justice in this world. And we look around us and we see a lot of injustice, you know, abortion, human trafficking, discrimination, corruption in our government, attacks upon religious liberty. But when we look at it, when we're tempted to be discouraged, we're not. Because God cares about a just society and we are not without hope. Through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, hearts can be changed to hate these things. And Christian history has shown us that that is the case. And you might be thinking, okay, where do we come into all of this? You know, I'm a, I'm a stay-at-home mom. How do I establish justice in my society? I'm a, I'm a, uh, I work from home for, you know, IT or something like that. How can I establish justice in this world? Well, one solution that people have offered is that you can become active in something known as social justice. Social justice. Now, social justice is a term that gets thrown around a lot, especially in the last few years. But how should we as Christians look at social justice? I mean, the Bible is very clear. We've seen that we are to seek justice. And so why would, why would we as Christians uh, not be all on board for this idea of social justice? Well, to quote the, the homeschool classic, I know we have a lot of homeschoolers here, the Princess Bride, as Inigo Montoya said, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. See, we can use this term, or people can use this term, social justice without actually understanding what it means. You know, we think social justice just means you're against racism. And because we should all be against racism as Christians, you know, then we should all be on board with social justice. But the problem with that is that that's not what social justice means. Here's how those who support social justice define it. <coughs> this is from uh, the Oxford Dictionary of the Human Language. It says this, social justice is justice in terms of the distribution of wealth, opportunities, commodities, and privileges within a society. And so social justice is really about creating equality through redistribution of power, resources, and wealth. It's all about this idea of equality of outcome, not equality of, of opportunity. You might say, okay, what does equality of outcome mean? So let me, let me explain. Equality of outcome, which social justice seeks to accomplish, says that there are certain people groups that are not at the same level as other people groups, and the reason is, is because there's some sort of injustice. You know, for example, if, if LGBTQ people commit suicide at higher rates than non-LGBT people, then it's because there's some sort of injustice within society that needs to be fixed. And so social justice is fixing that injustice that is causing 
this disparity between outcomes. And the solution is there needs to be a redistribution of power, usually by the state or resources or wealth, to create this, this even playing field so that the outcome will all be the same. You know, even if that means stripping one group of their rights in order to get this equal outcome. Or even if that means lowering the bar for a certain underprivileged group and raising the bar for a privileged group so that you can get an equal outcome. A common place that we're seeing this <coughs> is on college campuses. You know, certain schools have rules that there must be a certain number of you know, minorities in a program. And so the, the standard for white kids is going to be one level. The standard for black kids is going to be another level. The standard for Asian kids is going to be another level. And the goal is to create this equal representation, even if it means, let's say, rejecting a more qualified person for admission or a job or something like that. And that's really because the goal of social justice is to establish this utopian view of everyone being the exact same. You know, ultimately, it's, it's Marxism packaged in a new bag, and it's, it's really not what biblical justice is. You know, the prophets Amos don't say, don't, don't come to the people of Israel when, when the rich are abusing the poor and say, the solution here is everybody just needs to have equal amounts of money, equal amounts of the, the same outcome. We need the same number of these guys in government as these guys in government. That's not, that's not biblical justice. That's not what we're called to seek as Christians. And so if you want more information on this, I suggest you check out a, a wonderful book. Uh, it's called Fault Lines by a guy named Vodi Bakum. And so it's, it's very clear then that, okay, social justice is not the solution uh, to, uh, what we are, to how we are to establish justice on this earth. So what then is the solution? Well, I think uh, it starts with two things. First, we need a standard for what justice is. We need a standard for what justice is. And that standard, we have. Some of you are holding it within your hands. It is the word of God that tells us what is just and what is unjust. And so as Christians, we should, we should use the word of God to seek to establish justice in our societies. You know, sometimes Christians, uh, sometimes uh, non-Christians and even Christians themselves will, will say, you, know, you need to keep your politics out of government. You know, you got to keep your beliefs or keep your, your beliefs out of politics. Keep your, uh, your faith uh, at home with you when you come into work. But my answer to that is that, that that's really impossible. You know, even for a, a secularist, they have beliefs about right and wrong. They have beliefs about justice and injustice. They have a religion. They just don't come to gather every Sunday Morning. Every law that is made in this country is a moral law, making some sort of statement on justice. And so Christians need to 100% be bringing in the Word of God into politics. I mean, do we actually believe that this is God's Word? Do we believe that God's standard of justice is better than the standard of justice that we can come up with? We should, because Otherwise, we should just chuck the Bible aside and, and, and just rely upon our own intuition and our own knowledge. We need to start, the first solution is we need to start with the Word of God seeking to establish justice in this world. 
And the second solution, really the solution to all of the problems of injustice, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, people will not seek true justice without the gospel. It's really that simple. There's no reason to believe that a a pagan society is going to be just if they reject God. I mean, even Israel, they, they did have this. They had the first solution. They had the word of God. They had the laws of God. And yet what happened? They oppressed the poor. They sold the innocent for silver. They stomped on the oppressed like the dust of the earth. And it's because their hearts had not been changed by the goodness of the gospel. And so our call as as Christians, is to seek justice. And we do this through the word of God, but more so we do it through the proclamation of the gospel. We do so by looking for ways and areas in our own life and in our own church where we can establish justice, looking after the, the fatherless, looking after the widow, looking after the poor. And then we we go and we seek justice in the public square. We, we hold our politicians accountable for their injustice and we seek to establish justice according to God's word. And then most of all, we proclaim the gospel with all of our hearts that God would, would change the, the hard hearts of our society and bring them towards the righteousness of God. See, the plan of God is bigger than you and me. It has societal implications. Now on to the second point, which isn't as long, so don't worry. We see that not only does God's plan have societal implications, but it it extends even beyond our society to the whole world. The second point is that God's plan has universal implications. Look at verse 44 and 45 back in Luke chapter 1. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Now immediately you might be thinking, wait, the dots aren't connecting. You just said the gospel has universal implications, but now you just said all, all you mentioned was Israel and Abraham and his offspring. And so... How can I say that, that this, is, this is about the universal implications of the gospel? And the reason is because with the coming of Christ, we see that who the offspring of Abraham is develops. See, the Bible talks about four different types of the offspring of Abraham. You know, the first is the, the natural, physical offspring of Abraham. And this is the, the children of Abraham. So Abraham bears Ishmael, he bears Isaac. Genesis 25 tells us he remarries and, and Keturah uh, bears sons to him. And so these are the natural, physical offspring, the first offspring of Abraham. And then second, you have his natural, special offspring. And this is the, the second group of Abraham's offspring. And this is what forms national Israel. That though Abraham fathered both Ishmael and Isaac, As we read through Genesis, we see that Isaac was only the son of promise. Though Isaac fathered both Jacob and Esau, we see that it is only Jacob who is the child of promise. 
And then Jacob has his 12 sons who become the nation of Israel. And this is all who are, are considered as Jews, the, the natural, special offspring of Abraham. That's the second one. And then you have the third offspring of Abraham. And Scripture tells us that the third offspring of Abraham is Christ himself. Listen to these words from Galatians 3, verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. You see, Paul makes it clear that Christ is really the ultimate offspring of Abraham that was promised. He is the one, when, when God made the promise to, to uh, Abraham that through you all the nations will be blessed, that is Christ, who is the one who blesses all nations. He is the true seed of Abraham. And then finally, in light of the coming of Christ as the true offspring of Abraham, a fourth group fully emerges. And these are believers in Christ, past, present, and future. Abraham's spiritual offspring. In Galatians 3, verse 29, it says, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Or again, in Romans 9, verse 8, It is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. See, it's clear that, that the offspring of Abraham are those who have faith in Christ. Those who have been brought into the new covenant of Christ. Now, we have a lot of people here from different uh, denominations, different uh, views of, of things like baptism. But really, this is a reason at Evergreen why we, we baptize only believers. Just as circumcision in the Abrahamic covenant was only given to the natural offspring of Abraham, both physical and national, so too is baptism, the sign of the new covenant, only given to the offspring of Abraham, the spiritual offspring, those who are in Christ. And so you might say, okay, now why should all of this cause us to rejoice? Well, if it is true that we are Abraham's offspring, now we are able to take hold of the promises of God. We are able to take hold of the promises of God. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 says, All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. Let me read that again. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. You know what that means? That means that what was promised of old to the offspring of Abraham, we can now claim for ourselves. And when God says to Israel, I will make you a holy nation, we can claim that for ourselves. When God says to Israel, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, we can claim that for ourselves. When God says to Israel that they will inherit the land, we can claim that for ourselves. We shall inherit an even greater land, the new heavens and the new earth. 
And this is all universal. It is limited by any race, ethnicity, gender, or social status. You know, the kingdom of God is offered to everyone. I truly believe that there will be someone from every tribe and nation gathered around the throne of Christ worshiping uh, for all eternity. As the, the 24 elders in Revelation 5 cried out around the throne of the Lamb saying, With your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. See, Christ will exercise his lordship in a universal way. God's plan is is bigger than you and me. And so I want to ask you this Christmas morning, what role are you playing in God's larger plan? What role are you playing in God's larger plan? Whether that be his plan for societal change or his plan for the universal discipling of the nations. What are you doing? If the answer is, is nothing, then how can you change that? How can you change that? See, our, our, our Christianity, our relationship with God was never meant to come and halt at us. We're not the end goal. Now, there's really a, a greater goal that we are to press onto, and, and now we are the tools in God's hand to accomplish that. Now, it's not an easy thing to do. Definitely not a, a comfortable thing to do, but it's a biblical thing to do, and it's a worthy thing to do. Let me finish with a quote from John Piper. He says this in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. What you do, whatever you do, find the God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated passion of your life and find your way to say it, it and to die for it. And you will make a difference that lasts. You will not waste your life. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we see here in Mary's song as she reflects on your workings throughout history and as she looks forward to the workings you're going to do, or that the gospel doesn't end with us. It's not only about me and my relationship with God, but it goes beyond that. And Lord, I pray that you would use all of us as as Christians, use us as a church, Lord, to be people who seek justice in the land. Lord, would we not receive the rebukes of the prophets? Uh, Would we not uh, fail to neglect the great commission that the Lord Jesus has given us? But would we see, Lord, your greater plan? And would we with joy come alongside and play a part in that. Lord, your, your plan was sent to a new level uh, on Christmas with the coming of Christ, that he came to redeem us from our sins, lived a perfect life, died and was raised from the dead, and that before he ascended into heaven, he said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And behold, I will be with you to the very end of the age. Lord, may we now go out from here seeking justice, seeking salvation for the lost, 
bringing glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen.